Welcome to the Sustainability Agenda podcast. My name is Fregel Byrne. Every week I speak to leading sustainability thinkers and practitioners, scientists, economists, NGOs, business leaders and investors. We discuss the sustainability imperative, the key challenges, the latest thinking, and what's working in sustainability, resilience and regeneration. I'm very pleased today to welcome Eva Gladick to the Sustainability Agenda podcast. Eva is the founder and CEO of Metabolic, a consulting and venture building company that uses systems thinking to tackle critical sustainability challenges. Eva originally trained as a molecular biologist and industrial ecologist. She's advised over 300 companies and industry leaders and developed broadly adapted methodologies for system thinking, the circular economy and sustainable design. Thank you very much, Eva, for joining me today on the Sustainability Agenda podcast. Great. Very happy to be here. Thanks. Excellent. Um, So um, I'd like to talk to you about the work that you do at Metabolic. I'd like to find out more about that work. And maybe just to begin, if you're able to tell us a little bit about your background and what Metabolic does. Yeah, absolutely. Um, So my personal background uh, is that I started my career as a molecular biologist. I started working in laboratories quite early on in my life and uh, was really passionate about becoming a geneticist. Went to university to study that and get a degree in it. And in that process, realized that I was becoming hyper-specialized in um, a very small subset of what was going on in the world and that all of these bigger societal issues were um, kind of out of reach um, from my you know, bench in the laboratory. And um, I then switched gears to get a degree um, in something called industrial ecology, um, which is the science of sustainability. And um, you, we use different techniques like material flow analysis, life cycle assessment, uh, systems dynamics modeling to understand the human world in relation to the environment and how these two different systems affect one another. And in principle, there's a lot of use of biological metaphors to really understand how can we bring uh, the human economy in in line with to to have it have a healthy metabolism, to have it process resources and energy in a way that continues to cycle as it does um, in the natural world. And so metabolic, continuing with that um, biological metaphor for human systems, we're really looking at the health of the um, metabolism of the economy and of our cities and of our industries and trying to bring them in line with with the limits of the planet, so within the planetary boundaries and the safe operating space. Um, and uh, in lots of ways, Metabolic is an applied industrial ecology firm. That's a lot of what we do. But um, since most people don't understand what an industrial ecology is, we often explain um, our activities by saying that we have a consulting arm, we have a, a think tank, And we have a venture building arm. So three distinct um, entities operating under the metabolic brand that are all working toward our one mission, which is to transition the global economy to a fundamentally sustainable state and to do that as quickly as possible using a a kind of systems approach to identify the greatest areas of leverage. Right. Really important work. Um, I normally start at the uh, outset to ask uh, interviewees what's on their mind right now. Um, <laughs> uh, 
while we're, we're in the middle of this uh, uh, lockdown uh, and uh, in, in, in very challenging circumstances. Um, maybe if you could tell me a little bit about what's on your mind and, and maybe, I guess, in the run-up to this as well. I mean, you've been working in this area of sustainability uh, for, for many years and, um, yeah, just at that, that kind of uh, juncture that uh, of, of time. Yeah, I mean, of course, um, I, I'm pretty sure this is on everyone's mind, but I, I am continuously thinking about the current surreal situation we find ourselves in with this whole um, pandemic and uh, really linking that to the work that we do and really thinking of um, the lessons that we've drawn from years of these different projects to understand what resilient systems look like, what resilient human systems and economic systems look like, and trying to think of, okay, well, what are the best pathways that we could use to navigate from this um, uh, this kind of rupture that we've experienced in the normal flow of daily life to a, a new state? And I, I think there are ways to use this situation um, to our advantage because it has awoken people to the fact that large-scale um, change is possible even overnight, um, that we are really our own, um, you know, the only thing that is preventing us from taking dramatic actions are uh, is our, ourselves. Um, so uh, it has created an opening for perhaps more radical uh, pathways, you know, seeing Spain announcing that they're going to be implementing universal basic income and that that, that is their long-term yes. plan. Um, that's something that would have been quite unthinkable uh, previously, but we, we've been thrust into a series of very large-scale experiments. Um, so I think that's one of the elements of silver lining. Um, but of course, a lot of it is, uh, is just tragic and, um, quite challenging to deal with on both a kind of personal and organizational level, as well as, um, anticipating what might happen to, um, the economy at large as we progress through this. Yes, yes, very interesting. I, yeah, clearly, as you say, it's, it's first and foremost an enormous human tragedy. Um, it's still unfolding. Um, but as you say, looking forward as well, it's important to start thinking about that, particularly as, as so much is changing at the moment. Just wondering in terms of looking at what has happened um, from, the, from, from the lens of resilience, I suppose, um, what would have been your diagnosis as to, I guess, um, I mean, I know you operate, you do a lot of work at city level and corporate level, but presumably also um, the, have, have a vision, a view of, of national economics, which is, you know, uh, tied in with the global economics as well. So I guess looking at the, through the lens of resilience, how you would have diagnosed uh, maybe sort of a very uh, a overview where we were uh, as an economy, as a global economy, and, and I guess how that, that has the, the, that diagnosis has come true, or you know the degree to which where we are today is reflects some uh, resi- ideas about resilience. Yeah, um, so I, I've obviously been thinking about this um, a lot, um, and. I feel like there are a few ways in which we've clearly exposed some of the cracks in the system and shown how it's not resilient um, when it comes to the the global economy, um, some pretty drastically. Um, So for one thing, we've uh, obviously revealed the fragility of um, the way we've organized our supply chains. There's been a lot of discussion around uh, about this um, online. Um, if you've ever looked at network diagrams showing um, just theoretical networks 
um, that can either be organized as hubs and spokes or um, distributed networks with multiple hubs or mesh networks. They have different levels of resilience to impacts. Um, and so we have been very lulled into a, a kind of sense of security with um, everything humming along so well for so many decades that we've actually man started to really centralize certain um, types of production, certain types of knowledge, certain um, uh, yeah resource flows. So, so we have gotten to a kind of less resilient supply chain network that has been very hard hit by um, the crisis. So um, there were reports of around 70% of companies experiencing some kind of supply chain disruption. Of course, there were lots of discussions around um, the disruption in the supply of uh, pharmaceuticals and medical equipment, concerns about electronics and um, certain types of goods that are manufactured in uh, particular parts of the world running running out. Um, so that's kind of one indication that we don't have um, robust, self-sufficient uh, communities or regional supply chains that cover all the bases. And that's something that I think there is going to be a rebound on moving forward, um, looking to create more uh, kind of local resilience. And this isn't about, you know, closing off economies or necessarily deglobalizing. It's more really about thinking um, about the different types of potential disruptions that could take place and how to build a more resilient um, supply network. And when it comes to the circular economy, it's also highly beneficial because um, we need to move toward a situation where we actually have, let's say, urban centers not just serving as consumers, as these kind of resource drains, drawing materials from the hinterlands and from other parts of the world, but rather also figuring out how to repurpose those materials in closed um, cycles within the kind of peri-urban area of those uh, cities and, and those regions, um, because it doesn't make sense to continuously transport in and out all of this material, and it actually creates much more resilient hubs and communities with more diverse economic practices and activities. So, um, so there is a kind of dual pathway there. Um, about creating more resilience to shocks as well as um, increasing the potential of a, of a local circular economy. So that's one dimension um, that has revealed, you know, that has been revealed in this whole situation. There, there are several others. Um, one of them has to do with uh, the massive amount of inequality that we know has been plaguing um, the entire world for, uh, for decades and has been only getting more severe. Uh, with the richest of the rich having um, vast amounts of financial resources and then more and more of the uh, people at the bottom of the pyramid, well, that pyramid is getting bigger um, with a broader base and, and people have less and less money. Now that becomes everyone's problem once um, the the situation, um, well, it, if you have a situation like this, um, uh, the one we're facing now, where lots of different sectors of the economy have shut down um, many people are suddenly out of work and none of them had financial buffering capacity to really survive um, for a longer period of time. So we're, we're seeing these record amounts of um, unemployment and um, people basically falling out of the bottom of the system. And in the global south, of course, there have been projections that this is going to set back um, improvements in, in um, well, reductions in poverty by around 30 years. So really drastic um, shifts. And this has to fundamentally do with the unequal distribution of wealth and um, the kind of uh, concentration of buffering capacity on one side of the population, whereas the vast majority of people don't have ways to um, get through any kind of crisis. 
Um, and ultimately that's not good for anyone and not, not for the wealthy people either. Um, so that's a, another uh, dimension of, of resilience and uh, something that we've seen failing in this, in this current situation. Yes. Very, 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 very interesting. The, um, I, I probably should have asked you what, what, how you look at, I, I know there are many ways probably of, of framing or parsing it, but how you look at resilience, what, what, it, what it actually means. Um, yeah. So, I mean, of course, like the kind of general um, definition of, uh, or like the very common definition of resilience has to do with um, the ability of a system to um, withstand shocks um, and to maintain well and to maintain its functioning. Now, that's not necessarily um, something that we always want because some of the systems that we yes, have yeah. are really problematic, and we don't actually want them to maintain their current levels of functioning. Um, so, I I think it it's really about um, identifying the kind of um, parameters and characteristics of um, of society that we wish to maintain and keep. And um, ensuring that those uh, that those qualities uh, can survive um, any kind of crisis or or change. Um, so it has to do with creating adaptability and self learning mechanisms, and um, indeed buffering capacity, uh, strong communities, um, and uh, having kind of fundamental mechanisms for. Um, self-replicating solutions and, and distributing knowledge and, and allowing people to kind of adaptively grow out of crises. That's very interesting that what you say, because clearly, you know, if, if you look at the state of the world today, you would say that maybe the, the, the particular form of economics uh, uh, that we have today has not served us well and uh, shouldn't really be uh, wouldn't be helpful as a way forward, um, and, and th things need to fundamentally change. Um, and I'm just wondering, does your work have you looked at? Because this, I guess, it overlaps with a, a, an area of collapse as well. Because some things have to collapse. How do you? Uh, I, 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 have you in your work come across this kind of, as you say, adapt, ad adaptive change where a system, uh, parts of the system have to collapse or, or die or, or, or be radically transformed uh, while, you know, you want new, new, new elements to come into the system as well? I mean, I, what, what are your thoughts on that? Um, well, yeah, I mean, I think it's, it's kind of um, inevitable that if you want to radically transform a system, um, that parts of it will probably have to collapse because um, it's. We all know that it's very difficult to get rid of the existing status quo, and this is one of the things that. Um, uh, so I, I've been working on a book for quite some time um, and hoping to <laughs> to put some more priority on that um, in the coming year. But it, it's really about envisioning the type of economic system that um, we actually need in order to support. Um, a sustainable circular economy, a uh, kind of uh, a sustainable vision of a future, as well as um, well-being and the potential for self-actualization for all people. Because I do fundamentally believe that the current economic system is not designed for that. It's actually designed in such a way that it prevents many of those outcomes from occurring. And even if you envision this kind of pathway, or, or well, if you envision this uh, this different kind of economic model. Um, getting there from here is very challenging because there are so many entrenched um, 
form, well, there's so much lock-in. So that's also why I said that, you know, having some element of collapse um, can be seen as an opportunity to insert new pathways and, and to at least create mindset uh, changes that um, open up certain uh, pathways for people. Um, so I suppose, yes, you can say collapse is not always bad, but um, ideally, in order to avoid as much suffering as possible, it needs to be a controlled form of collapse or um, something that's, you know, like you can blow up a building um, callously and uh, without paying attention to its architectural form, and it can create a lot of damage, or you can be one of these demolition experts that are able to figure out how to get it to collapse directly on top of its footprint without creating any um, damage outside of its uh, its zone. So I think there are different ways to approach collapse as well. Yes, yeah, it's a very interesting area and, and uh, happening as we speak, I suppose. Um, you, you, a lot of your work has focused on, uh, I think, uh, urban areas and cities and so forth. Can you talk a little bit about, I mean, what, what are some of the lessons that you've learned about, about resilience, about, you know, creating more resilient cities, shall we say, um, and how that might be helpful in us thinking about ways going forward of, uh, you know, creating more resilient economic systems? Yeah, sure. Um, for me, the um, a lot of the kind of... Um, discussion around resilience comes down to some fairly simple things. Um, humans are fundamentally quite straightforward um, creatures, I think. You know, in, in, for most people, um, in order to feel satisfied um, with their lives, they want um, access to a community of people that um, they respect and that respects them and where they feel accepted and safe and um, where they can learn and uh, experience things and to be able to spend most of their time in meaningful ways. Um, so this is what people generally need in order to be happy. And I feel like um, if you are able to create the environment within um, cities or rural contexts, whatever it may be, where you uh, foster the development of strong community units that have um, certain levels of um, autonomy as in uh, certain governance rights of their own um, that are linked up to larger units uh, of multiple communities that have certain other governance rights. Um, and that within these communities, you have uh, good levels of um, exchange of, of resources, of, of time that people can provide each other with um, support services um, in a kind of non-transactional way, then you start to create the, a foundation of a really resilient city. Um, you also need, of course, um, a certain level of diversity. We need, um, if you have monocultures, monocultures tend to be not resilient in general. You can see that with, you know, imagine a field of a single type of of crop and um, a pest appears that likes that crop and all of a sudden it's all gone when you have polycultures. Um, there's more uh, ability for different parts of the system to compensate for one another, et cetera. And this is absolutely true in cities. So you need strong communities, um, you need diversity, uh, you need um, good decentralization of uh, different governance principles and giving people the, the feeling that they are um, in charge of their own um, destinies and authorities. And, you know, this has to, I'm talking a lot about the human level. Um, 
of things because that's really where the foundations are. Um, a lot of our work, of course, focuses on environmental um, impacts in the kind of biophysical sphere, the design of buildings, the design of neighborhoods, et cetera. But it, it, for me, it is all, it, it rests on that foundation of strong communities. And then you're able to build the kind of physical infrastructure that both supports those communities as well as um, creates fundamental physical resilience to, uh, you know, climate issues, weather issues um, that reduces the, the, well, that actually increases um, linkages by creating more uh, porous, walkable environments, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, very interesting. And how do corporates uh, interface with, with, with these uh, when you look at it at the, this level? How do corporates interface with cities or how do they... Um, yeah, when you're talking about this resilience that grows from communities and so forth, um, <laughs> we, we, yeah, ha, 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 in your experience, do, I mean, corporations are profit maximizing uh, entities by and large. Um, uh, you work with corporations too, I guess, from the circular economy perspective. But what role do they play in, in uh, ideally, in in I guess, in collaborating or being part of or interfacing with these kind of sustainable, uh, resilient communities? Well, they can and should play a very important role. Um, so, of course, um, the, well, I, I guess it depends, you know, like if corporations are part of the system, then they can and should play an important role. Um, but the nature of corporations is also something that has to fundamentally change. Um, because they are indeed designed to maximize profit at all costs for the most part, even though they're full of really good people who have other um, objectives and um, mostly are very good hearted. Um, sometimes it's just not possible within the kind of framework of the corporation and what it allows one to do um, to take actions in that direction. But I do think that, um, so one of the things that we've seen, of course, we and we do indeed work with lots of corporations. Most of the work that we do with companies is much less visible because a lot of it is in, indeed under NDA or we just can't share it. Um, and corporations tend to have um, very expansive uh, supply chains that are often um, both horizontally and vertically integrated where they, um, they gain control over resources around the world. Um, they standardize um, the design of certain products and the conversion of those resources into these products. And we get a lot of value out of that, certainly. A lot of people love being able to um, order a Starbucks latte anywhere in the world, and it's always the same. And they can rely on that quality and they trust the, the fact that it's not going to poison them. Um, so there, there's a lot of value that people get from it. Yeah, um, yeah. Um, but it also has a consequence of funneling away those resources that could be used by local communities to produce um, local goods with um, completely different, um, you know, ingredients or outputs. Or it basically tamps down the creativity of um, the human workforce in a way, because most people are then brought into producing these standardized products um, instead of producing their own things and gaining the profit from producing their own things or participate, creating local economies. Um, so I think one of the pathways forward that we're also exploring with some of our corporate partners and encouraging them to move in this direction is to actually 
reverse some aspects of this centralization and this um, standardization and instead tap into the power of communities and basically support the development of stronger communities, uh, support farmer cooperatives, support the development of new products in, through kind of like brand partnerships with local um, uh, with local people, build capacity in these areas and then have instead of having one product that's available everywhere, have like many different products around the world that are customized based on the local, um, you know, agricultural crops available and other resources and, and that are produced um, by local groups. So that is one pathway um, that you could take with corporations and them encouraging and creating resilience. Um, of course, it, it's much more complicated than that. And it's still... I'm not saying necessarily that this is the future that we want, but it's it's a pathway, let's say, that is like a transition from having corporate um, structures that dominate all resource flows to a model where we move toward more um, local hubs and resilience and decentralization and tapping into um, something like what the economies of um, pre-corporate eras looked like. <laughs> Yes. Yeah. Very interesting. Um, some big questions here. and <laughs> trying to uh, uh, cover a lot of ground here. Um, but um, you, you, you mentioned this work that you're doing with corporations and so forth. In your experience, what are a few of the, uh, I guess, necessary conditions for this work to succeed? There are obviously many different forces in play when you come to circular type economics. You've got, you know, government regulations, you've got consumers, you've got stakeholders, you've got corporate culture. And I guess to some degree, you've got different kinds of corporations now or with B Corps and things like that. But I'm just wondering from your experience, um, I, I mean, presumably, you, you know, you, know you, you see some projects just do, do, do better. Other projects, you know, you spend a lot of time, have a lot of uh, insights and so forth. But actually how much of that's translated into action can be sometimes a, uh, you know, a, a challenge or, or another question. Are there a few uh, elements that you, you think that uh, uh, are, are uh, propitious for, 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 for change on this front? Uh, yeah, I, absolutely. I mean, one of the most important um, preconditions of successful corporate uh, transformation towards sustainability is definitely buy-in and commitment from upper management. And this is something that we just see consist consistently. So some of the projects that we're doing with large companies are um, indeed with directly with CEOs and with um, uh, C-level and board-level um, parties. And others are um, slightly lower down the management chain. And um, both types of engagement can be quite successful in resulting in um, in actual uh, implementation but if if we're working with kind of middle management and there isn't the kind of direct drive and mandate from the ceo saying yes prioritize sustainability then you see that things fall flat consistently so for example i was recently having a conversation with um a, a packaging uh, team, a packaging department um, of a large corporate. And um, we were talking about how uh, they needed to, with just a few changes to their packaging design, um, they could make it fully recycled and recyclable and uh, within current infrastructure. And therefore it would be 
um, circular in that sense. And they were, and so we were asking them, well, you know, are these changes that we're talking about, is this technically possible? Can you do this? And they said, yeah, this is no problem. These are actually very easy changes to make. We could definitely do this. And then we asked, well, why haven't you? And they said, well, because these aren't part of our mandate. We've never been told to prioritize um, these elements or these outcomes. And we, we've not been asked to make this, uh, this packaging circular or recyclable or recycled. It's just not been part of the objective. And I think that that exists, uh, that kind of situation exists in so many organizations where it's so easy to make um, fundamental changes to products and packaging and all sorts of other things um, that drastically reduce footprint, but it's just not done. Um, so that's one piece, which is the kind of top-down buy-in. But the biggest stumbling block, and this isn't news, um, is that uh, often sustainable uh, choices do not op- optimize for profit. Sometimes they do. There's this Venn diagram of where you have, um, you know, sustainable um, solutions and um, product designs, and um, and then uh, basically things that optimize for profit. And sometimes you have uh, projects in between in that kind of intersection that really work on both objectives. But for the most part, um, the kind of sustainable um, choices lead to long-term profit maximization and long-term resilience and uh, multiple different types of value that they produce from preserving natural capital to preserving natural health to all sorts of things that we don't calculate and don't account for. And um, they don't stack up very well against exploitative, destructive um, practices and product design choices that um, maximize for short-term profit, which is the only metric that, we, that, that is calculated by many of these organizations. And that's something that is still the fundamental stumbling block. Yes. Yes. Um, now, at the heart of your work, I get the impression um, the systems thinking, systems approach seems to be everywhere. Can you talk a little bit about that? And also in terms of, um, yeah, where where do we see good examples of systems thinking and how would a, uh, talk about cities or corporates incorporate more systems type thinking what 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 what, firstly what would be the benefits of that secondly are you optimistic or how how do we move towards a more systems-based thinking approach yeah uh great question so systems thinking is in many ways uh very straightforward it's um the recognition that um everything is connected and that um if you take an action there isn't just one immediate reaction, but a whole cascade, a whole ripple effect of, of um, uh, things that knock on from, from that one action. And in the kind of um, model of the world that most of us have been trained in through school, we take a very reductionist, um, or we're, we're taught a very reductionist approach where A leads to B and that's uh, that's it. And you don't look outside that, um, that scope. Um, but the problem, there are many problems uh, that result from this kind of reductionist view rather than a systems view. And sometimes I, ex- I explain this by using a simple um, metaphors of, of the Rubik's cube. So if you have a Rubik's cube and you're trying to solve it and you're trying to, and you approach it from a reductionist viewpoint, you'll 
look at um, one of the squares that you want to move to a particular location, and then you'll take the, the actions needed to twist the cube so that it moves to that spot. Now, of course, um, it's a complex puzzle that's based on um, uh, an algorithm, basically, if you want to solve it. And so if you twist it just to move that one square to the location you want it to go, it's going to scramble the rest of the cube. So you'll just keep messing it up over and over again. So you really need to understand the system of the cube, the, the algorithm that's behind um, so the solution to be able to actually crack the puzzle. Um, so in real life, what this looks like is that um, people make really kind of reductionist choices by, by narrowing down their, the scope of their focus. And they say, okay, well, I, if I, another common example that I use is around um, light bulbs. So we know that the incandescent light bulb uh, is quite energy intensive. And so if you give a designer the challenge of, of uh, making a, a different kind of lighting solution that uses less energy, um, they might produce something like the CFL um, or the mercury lamp, as it's also known. So one of the challenges of that is that you can solve for an energy problem. Um, so the CFL is much more energy efficient, um, but you can create a new uh, problem at the same time. So um, even though they don't have as much mercury in them today as they used to, they are known as mercury lamps because they contain mercury. And mercury is a neurotoxin that we've been trying to get out of our environment for a long time. Um, and now we're creating a product that is basically distributing this neurotoxin throughout um, many, many people's homes. And of course now um, CFLs have mostly been superseded by LEDs. Um, but they have um, um, other challenges associated with them as well. And they're basically electronics. So we need to figure out how to get those complex, scarce materials back. So there's the, um, there's this, we have to have this continuous understanding of um, trade-offs um, and of what we call burden shifting. So solving for one problem while creating a new one. And if we don't have the systems perspective when looking at um, the, the challenges that we're trying to tackle, we are going to continuously create um, these burden shifting uh, uh, accidents and we're not actually going to move toward the, uh, the goal that we want to go into. So there's a, a number of different strategies that you can use to um, think more systemically and to avoid these different pitfalls, of which there are many more. I, I have uh, several lectures that I give on this topic. Um, and one of them is to use holistic um, sets of indicators when you're trying to track progress. So never, for example, just focus on carbon emissions. Like a single indicator um, measure for tracking progress towards sustainability is always going to be problematic because it always creates the space and opportunity for these burden shifting issues to occur. So you fix your carbon problem, but suddenly um, there are more children dying in Africa and uh, you, you didn't pay attention because it was out of your scope of focus. So that's, um, that's one very important um, element uh, in terms of using systems thinking. Uh, another kind of basic thing that we always do is we, um, we map out the system and try to understand it in as much detail as possible before we start to mess with it. So if you're trying to optimize a supply chain or a product or a neighborhood or a whole city, um, we always start our uh, work by doing a systems analysis and trying to understand um, both the physical flows of resources, um, but also the flows of 
people and stakeholders and money and really trying to see how they relate to one another and what the kind of structure of that system is and why it's resulting in certain impacts that you want to get rid of. And once you know what that looks like, it starts to become very straightforward to figure out how to transform it. You also need a really clear vision of what you want that system to look like in the end state once you've transformed it. So you have your your current state where, you, where you're uh, starting from. It's kind of like plotting a route on Google Maps. Like you need to know where you're starting from and where you're going to before you can draw a route between them. So there's lots of different techniques. Um, and we teach them also to both cities and companies. Oh, very interesting, very interesting. And I guess there are, um, I mean, just if you extrapolate or take, if you look at, let's say, um, the Paris Accords and so forth, if you look at really stepping out at a very, very, very global level, um, you might have a sense of, of you know, uh, where you want to go by some kind of measures and so forth, but mapping that system is uh, almost impossible. So I suppose there are some heuristics or ways of thinking about moving a system towards a, a, a direction maybe and, and then leverage points along the way. Yeah, absolutely. So that's also one of the big or tricks in working um, using systems thinking is that the actual system if you wanted to map out the, the um, let's say you took the world as the system and you wanted to map out that system in, in perfect detail, well, you would need another earth. That would be the, the map. <laughs> um, yeah. So that's obviously not possible. So a lot of the art in it is to figure out how to reduce it um, in complexity so that you're maintaining the most important relationships and um, uh, covering basically 80% of what's important um, in, in in some way. So we have different tricks for, for doing that, for simplifying things down. Yes, very interesting. So I just wanted to come back to the circular economy uh, for a moment and get a sense. How do you dimensionalize the potential of something like the circular economy and where are we on the journey? Uh, <laughs> another big question, and I guess it varies very much by sector and so forth. But Really, how, how, how much potential do you think there is here in really uh, moving towards a sustainable world? I think there's a few things that we need to achieve. So the way that we've been conceptualizing this with metabolic is that um, there's this bigger overarching transition of moving to a sustainable world that we want to achieve, um, planet within planetary boundaries. And we've divided in, into six sub-transitions um, that were trying to measure and push forward. And um, one of them is the agri-food and land use transition. One is the transition in cities and regions, so our habitat and how we live. And one of them is indeed the kind of um, industry and products and services transition. Um, in, in terms of the circular economy, uh, I, I genuinely believe that we need to move toward a world where um, all of our resources are managed in a circular way. Um, the potential for this, I mean, there are various studies that have estimated it, linking it to um, climate change. Um, so there's a study that I've seen that estimates between 60 to 70 percent carbon emissions reduction by moving to a circular economy, um, basically stating that it's also one of the prerequisites for achieving um, the Paris ambitions. Um, work that we've done has also shown that we simply don't have enough critical metals of different types for producing all the solar panels and wind turbines and, ele uh, and electric vehicle batteries that we're going to need. If we don't have a circular model, we actually really need to figure out how to recover these materials back into the system. Um, so the potential 
is huge. It's also very logical to uh, try to design a system modeled more after uh, the natural flow of resources where no wastes are structurally created, um, at least not problematically. Um, and I think uh, we, we can definitely do it. It's just a matter of having that be a directive and a mandate. Now, if you said, okay, um, from a certain date in the future, let's say from 2025, no products can be put on the market that are not designed according to circular principles. And what does that mean? That means that they have to be um, fully disassemblable and recyclable at high value um, and within infrastructure that exists. And you just said that that's now a rule. Um, well, then we would be very rapidly moved on our way toward a circular economy. It's, it's quite possible. And it harkens back to that conversation that I described with these packaging designers for this large corporate who were actually very capable of doing this, but um, weren't able uh, to implement these solutions without, uh, without the kind of um, mandate and directive. Um, so one of the things that we're doing is we have this circular product design boot camp, and we're working with some, some organizations to um, take a product and re-envision it um, from scratch, imagining that it was fully circular. And so we, we've done this quite successfully with a few organizations, and I've been quite impressed with the results, but I just wish we could uh, accelerate that and make that kind of way of thinking and, and approach available to more companies. Yes, yes. I have one final question, but just before that, if that's okay, if we're okay for time, I'm just wondering how far are we on our journey if you're a clear-eyed assessment of, you know, uh, a very difficult, I, I know, let's say global industry, but, you know, uh, is there some way you'd, you know, represent where we are in the journey towards a circular economy or, yeah. you know, a, yeah. Uh, very, very early on in the journey. So, I mean, like, I think if you look at... The we left the train station. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, at least we're at the train station, but I think we're just at the train <laughs> station. Uh, so I think that people are just coming into awareness about what this is, what the uh, potential could be. Um, but if you look at the actual performance metrics, it's most of the things that you still, if you go to a, a shop, most of the things that you buy will not be packaged in recyclable packaging. Um, most of the products are designed for, um, that have really scarce and valuable materials. They're not designed for material recovery or reuse. And it's just pretty straightforward. <laughs> Yeah, building same same thing. Yeah, yes, yes. Amsterdam. Um, I know you've been doing work in Amsterdam, and I know also. And I spoke to Kate Raworth before, who's they. I think they now published the the donut for Amsterdam. Yeah. Um, I'm wondering. Uh, mindful of the time, but I mean, what's your what lessons are there? Are there a few lessons in terms of how Amsterdam is approaching? Um, I guess a sustainable city. Um, I, so as a resident of Amsterdam, um, and, uh, a, a big fan of Kate's as well. Um, in general, I'm quite impressed with what Amsterdam, uh, does. I'm on the sustainability board of the city, um, and also on the international economic board. So I do get quite a kind of upfront look at, um, what's going on. Um, and I've been really pleased to see that Amsterdam has decided that the donut um, approach um, is going to be the economic pathway out of COVID. 
Um, and that's that's something that they're doubling down on and committing to rather than saying, oh, no, we have to just go back to, you know, conventional um, means of making profit and just getting things uh, set up. They're really looking at it as, a, as an interesting transition moment. Uh, I think Amsterdam has a as a good way of engaging its uh, its citizens, it's it's actually relatively easy as a citizen to uh, comment on and get involved in um, various projects. They um, they have high levels of ambition. Of course, the ambition can always be higher, but I think they're really pushing themselves, um, especially with this new plan uh, and objectives to become fully circular and carbon neutral. So they're really taking it very seriously. I don't know <laughs> whether I can say more about it, but I'm happy to comment in more detail. <laughs> great great and what's next for you Eva, in terms of metabolic or any particular projects or direction that you're looking at right now we have a lot of really exciting things happening within metabolic um so uh as i mentioned in the beginning of the chat um metabolic started out really as one organization but there was always this idea of it becoming a more of an ecosystem of organizations because we need um, different approaches to tackle the big challenge that we're facing and that can't really comfortably be held within one entity. Um, so over the years, um, we, we always wanted to, to set up a venture building arm um, and we uh, only just now formally set that up because we first set ourselves the challenge of actually building three ventures successfully. Um, and now um, that we've done that and we've set up the venture building arm, I think we can have like a, a whole new way of engaging with with the world by creating also more disruptive um, vehicles for the transition. Uh, we have a, a very exciting project, um, an e-commerce platform that we're uh, collaborating with someone on that I, I think uh, it, it will be a really big step in, in the sustainability space. Um, and that's going to launch um, sometime next year. Um, so, so there's a lot of things, but we, uh, I think in terms of our philosophy and um, our vision around sustainability, we're continuously sharpen, sharpening that. And I uh, personally really hope that I will finally have time to write that book this year, <laughs> so, which becomes more realistic, actually, with this whole um, crisis. Um, but we'll see. Yeah, so there's a lot ahead. <laughs> Great, great. Well, I wish you all the best with that, Eva, and with your book. Thank you so much. Thank you very much, Virgil. Thank you for listening to the Sustainability Agenda podcast. I hope you found it interesting. It would be great if you could leave a review and share the podcast on social media. You can sign up at iTunes to make sure you don't miss any future episodes.